Okay, uh, welcome back to the Locker Room Podcast. Um, I know we have a running joke about myself and Joel Coulter, uh, normally the co-host getting kicked off the podcast and, and coming in and out for sessions. But today we've got, uh, we've kicked the gaffer off. So Kieran's not with us today. It's myself and uh, Ben Smalley who's going to co-host with me today. Um, Ben's the uh, sports scientist at DSS and uh, sports scientist at QPR Academy. So Ben, thanks for coming on for this podcast. Yeah, good to be on, Ross. Uh, looking forward to it. Should be a good chat. Should be a really good chat. And, and no um, further ado, we've got a massive guest on today, someone that I was desperate to bring on and only took me two weeks to track him down, which is a record. So we've got um, Ben Bradley, who Head of Academy Sports Science and Medicine at Bournemouth. Um, and we've had a little bit of discussion back and forth just in terms of our job roles. But Ben, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for joining us today, mate. No, no problem, Ross. Pleasure to be on. Looking forward to it. Fantastic. Um, before we get into it, guys, I must say a massive, um, massive shout out to our sponsor, uh, www.ripped.app. That's R-Y-P-T, all capital letters, who are sponsoring the podcast for at least a month um, and they're coming in collaboration with uh, Daily Sports Science here. And I'll go to you, Ben, in a little bit because you can discuss a little bit about the project that you're doing with them. But essentially, they're a platform that connects coaches uh, with either clients or different athletes and you can put programs um, into an app that clients can go in and see. There's video demonstrations there. It's a very, very good software that we've had to play around with DSS and we're, we're getting on board with them a bit more. You can put technical models on there and stuff. You can get feedback around RPEs and volume loads and, and client subjective feedback as well. Uh, ben, do you want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the project that's coming up in terms of the online training stuff that you're going to do? Yeah, no, absolutely. So first of all, it's a fantastic um, piece of software. Again, doesn't really leave any st stones unturned, unturned. Um, covers all bases. Um, and we're basically going to be putting together a project where we can do some online coaching. So that will be encompassing one-to-ones, um, -one individuals, um, all through this app. So we're going to be um, hosting a webinar series next week. So link into that. And that will be, uh, Cormac will be presenting on, on the app and going through that. And, uh, We'll present on on our work for for that when that comes around great stuff very exciting and and for all those that um want to head over to the website dailysportscience.com there's an offer that the guys are uh, ripped our app are putting on there a couple of months free i think um check it out on the website and check out their app and have a look at their services cormac and the guys are doing a great job just on that benny they, it might be by the time we release this it might have already gone the webinar so yeah, just just so we know but yeah great webinar there from cormac and the guys okay let's um let's get into this exciting stuff so we brought his guest on and, and want to pick his brain as much as we can ben and just for the listeners, because some of them might not have um, heard you on the Football Fitness Federation podcast recently, which, which we listened to and, and you, it was fantastic, by the way. Do you want to just give a brief um, update of kind of where you got to where you are now and just a bit of a career history? Yeah, thanks, Ross. Um, yeah, to be fair, not, not a great deal to, to say. I've spent uh, my career working in football. Um, I haven't really ventured out. something that, um, you know, I would potentially like to do in the future. Um, but yeah, in terms of my career, I've been, I've been in football the whole time. Um, we, we wind back to the start of my education, I guess, was um, doing a sport exercise science degree at Kingston University, um, 2010 to 2013, um, which was great. I think I, I went a little bit late, uh, a mature student, so I went there at sort of 23 years old and I knew exactly what I wanted to do with myself and where I wanted to go. So I was really focused, which, which really helped me out. And I look back and uh, I think that was the right thing to do now. Um, Got an internship at Crawley Town in my final year, so did that. That was really important for me to sort of get sort of a bit of knowledge on how uh, applied sport works. 
couple works um, and to decide whether I wanted to, to, to delve into that industry. And, and, and for me, that was a really nice learning curve to, um, you know, get, get hands on with the players, get hands on with the staff and see how that was. And, and that was a really fantastic year for me. Um, post that, I was looking for jobs in the summer. Obviously, I'd left that role, I'd had left university, um, managed to stumble across a role at AFC Bournemouth, which at the time was a uh, sort of a, an intern role or sort of an introductory role, if you like, in the academy. So the sports science department hadn't been there before and they were sort of kind of delve into that. Um, so the role I went down for um, was a year's contract, which was sort of, um, it was a paid one, sort of min minimally paid one. Um, again, like I say, just for them to sort of dip their toes into sports science and academies and see if it's something I always progress with in the future. Um, luckily for me, obviously made a decent enough impression and they, they decided to offer me a full-time contract a few months into that, which was perfect for me. Um, so I moved from my hometown of Brighton down to Bournemouth. Um, and that was, like I say, 2013, just coming into 2014 when they gave me that contract. And um, we've made lots of uh, changes since then. Um, the department's grown and the academy's grown massively since then and, and, and moved on year on year as the club itself. Um, so really pleased with the way it's gone. I'm really pleased with how the, the club and the academy is developing still. Um, and along the way, I've picked up my master's degree as well, 2015-16. I did an MSc in Applied Sports Science. Um, uh, distance learning at Worcester, because um, I was obviously working at the time. Um, and I guess since, um, since I've been there and, and sort of seven years, six, seven years now, I've been there, that the role itself has sort of evolved into, into the sort of head of sports science and medicine role head of elite performance role, whatever you want to call it these days, um, where, you know, uh, I've sort of got a team to oversee and sort of a strategy to, to put together and um, a framework for us to follow as a team um, in order for us to be successful and deliver the, the sort of aims um, and the vision of the club and the academy. And, and essentially that's to um, bring players through the system, keep them as long as we can and try and get them into the first team. If we can't do that, can we get them in? You know, football league clubs or, or national league clubs or as high as they can go um, so yeah that's where I am now um, not a glamorous journey uh, like some people have going here and there and doing all sorts of different stuff but that, that's the way that's the way it's gone for me and and I'm, I'm happy now where I am and, and happy to keep developing and keep learning and uh, hopefully keep progressing the department I'm working in. Thanks Ben and just to give the listeners a little um context to where you are. Listen, I've um, studied you and I'm sure anyone who's looked at you on social media and the department has always seen that Bournemouth are leading the way in certain aspects, but you're in quite a unique position. Your first team are in the Premier League, but the academy are currently at Cat 3 and you've been at Cat 3 for a while. Do you want to maybe just give the listeners a little bit of info around that in terms of maybe difficulties you've had implementing a certain programme and also maybe the benefits of that as well, being where you are as academy? Yeah, I mean... The, cat, the, the club and the academy have tried to, to, to progress the, the status of the, the academy up to sort of at least category two for quite a few years now. It's always been an ambition of our academy manager and of the club um, to, to push that category status up to where it needs to be. Um, in terms of our facilities that probably held us back, um, one of the main rules for category two status is having an indoor artificial pitch, indoor 3G or 4G pitch, which we currently don't have. And, and unfortunately for us, there's not one in the area um, close enough for us to use um, for it to qualify. A lot of clubs have done in the past to sort of work their way around those rules. So for us, it hasn't been that easy. But um, something that I'm really proud of and something that the club's done fantastically is they haven't sort of stopped and said, right, well, we're Cat 3, we can't push to Cat 2 for, for these specific reasons. 
Um, we're just going to sort of plod along where we are. Um, the academy and, and the staff in it have, have always said, no matter where we are and what capital status we are, we, we, we can still try and be the best we can be, um, which is why people like myself are still still at the club and still trying to, to, to move things forward because we know that the backing's there and um, people still have that ambition. Um, so, like I say, from where, where I started to where I am now, the academy is completely different regardless of the capital status. Um, so we've, we've our staff levels have gone, you know, through the roof in terms of the cap three. Um, I would suggest we meet the cap two levels um, of staffing um, without too much trouble in terms of coaching, especially. Um, all, all our age groups have got full-time coaches as well as um, assistant coaches. Um, our sports science and medicine department's grown um, hugely um, since I since I started. Uh, when I first came, we'll see myself in the role I was in when I first joined. Um, we had a senior physio full-time, a part-time analyst. Um, and, and we've gone on to the sort of team we've got now, which again isn't isn't sort of a cat one size sports science and medicine team, but um, there's there's two of us sports scientists full time, um, an SDT coach part time um, that we've got. Uh, we've got uh, three full times physios or sports therapists. Um, we have uh, our lead performance analyst uh, who's full time as well as a, a part time analyst as well. Um, so the, these roles were building on season by season, year by year, and we supplement that as well with um, our psychology PhD student, uh, analyst MSc, uh, analyst MSc student, and you know our, our sandwiches students as well, where, where we um, where we feel that the gaps are and, and the need is for those guys, and where we can provide them with sort of development opportunities. Um, so yeah, in terms of the category status, it hasn't held us back in that sense. Um, obviously, everyone wants to provide their players with the best opportunities to learn. So we, we try and, and, and mix our games program up as much as we can. So we, we appreciate our category games program for what it is. It's definitely, there's definitely still challenging games in there. There's definitely some real good work being done at other categories for sure that, that I've seen um, and some real competitive games that we have, um, which is great. And we also try and supplement that with, with getting our um, our players into sort of cat two friendlies, cat one friendlies, even grassroots friendlies. For us, it's about you know giving the, the players a variety. So if we can try and mix and match our our games program across the season, then for us that that's the real bonus that we can get. We've already got the cat three games penciled in. If we can add cat twos, cat ones, grassroots, any sort of foreign sort of tours and teams that we can add in there as well. Um, if we can get our bio banded games going and our year of birth games going as well, we're sort of. We're sort of trying to tick all those boxes and hit all those different challenges for our players. So I feel like, um, yes, we want to move up category status. Yes, that's definitely an aim. Definitely something that we're looking to do as soon as possible. Um, but I do feel like we try and make the most of what we've got. Um, and, I, and, I do, and I do feel like we do a decent job of giving the players varied experiences, which, which in the long term will hopefully help their development. Yeah, for sure. No, from the outside, it definitely looks like you're providing a great service. And we'll talk about the bioband in a bit later, because that's probably um, not what you're known for, but there's only a select amount of clubs that are maybe doing it regularly, and, and, and you guys are definitely one of them. So just talking about your games programme there, very interesting. Do you feel that when you play against a mixture of teams, so the Cat 1s and Cat 2s, a lot of the Cat 1s and Cat 2s might only play against each other. They might not experience Cat 3s, including us probably. We probably don't have enough games against Cat 3s. Do you think that provides the physical um, test sometimes and, and uh, challenges against playing against direct, more direct football at times that you might not get in the Cat 1 and Cat 2 programmes? Uh, for sure. The, the, cat, the Cat 1 games that we play especially are completely different to our Cat 3 games. Um, just the, the different styles that certain teams play. Um, a lot of the Cat 1 teams obviously play a similar way. Um, we play 
Uh, like I said, we played a lot of Cat 1 friendlies, especially, I would say, probably in the last three years. We've tried to play as many Cat 1 friendlies as we can. Um, we've played, you know, the big teams quite a lot. We've played Chelsea quite frequently. We've played Arsenal. We've played Spurs quite a bit. Um, we've played Reading quite a bit. You know, all the, all the Cat 1s that are sort of within a decent, um, decent, re decent reach of us, Southampton, Brighton. Um, and, you know, the, the football's great. So they've got some fantastic players, fantastic facilities. It's great for our boys to go there to see the sort of level where uh, they want to aim to be. Um, and, and they do provide different games. In terms of the way we play, um, they, they, we probably play a little bit more like the Cat 1s than, than the Cat 3 teams in terms of the way we play out from the back, in terms of the way we, we, we like to use the third of the pitch and, and play a progressive sort of game. Um, but I also feel like we probably... Um, have that little bit of extra energy when it comes to pressing that potentially cat ones sometimes do, sometimes don't have. So we'll, we'll try and play out from the back and, and do all those things. And we'll also try and work a high press as well. Um, and we'll, we'll go in, put, put teams under pressure and they maybe don't expect that from us. Um, if they haven't played us before, they don't play us, play us regularly. So what we do do is ask a, a, a real, a lot of our players, um, we expect them to be ready to play out from the back time and time again, no matter how many mistakes we make if, if we do make mistakes and we also expect them to go and press time after time so um, it's a real good challenge for me from a physical perspective trying to get our players conditioned and ready for that um, and the cat free games program again like I say the cat free games program is great as well because we get something you do get teams that want to play play football as well but like like you alluded to you get quite a few teams that like to play a bit more direct and work to their strengths again which is something that our players are going to come up against in their career so we feel like that's a great, there's a great balance for us in the games program we provide, um, and, and and sometimes the, the cat free games are um, a bit more direct, and sometimes they're a bit more you know cut and thrust, and and, uh, and and they can get a bit a bit feisty at times. But as can any game, even with the cat ones, it depends how the game's going. Um, but like I say, there's some there's some really good cat free teams that are doing some really good work. Um, they don't all play long. Long, long football. Um, it's, it's a bit of a mixture, um, but we can also um, get the, the different side of the game, the more technical side, I would say, um, from the, the sort of Cat One players that are looking to sort of break into the Cat One under twenty threes and first teams, for example, um, that might that might have a potentially might have a higher technical ability. But when you look at the Cat Threes, I guess they're they're trying to get in get in their teams. A lot of the Cat Threes are League One, League Two, first teams. Um, so they're working towards what the first team manager wants um, and, and looking to try and get their players into their first team on Saturday or Tuesday night. Um, so we respect that massively. Um, and a lot of the players in, in, in the Cat 3 games programme don't have um, under 23 squads as well above their 18s, for example. Um, so they're a lot closer to first teams and, and, and a lot of the Cat 3 players we play against have had first team exposure. So again, that's a really, really nice benefit for us playing against them, um, you know, when they've already played, you know, a few League One games, League Two games, even conference games maybe. Um, but having that senior put one to their belt gives them that experience. It's nice for our boys to play against them as well. Like I say, the, the, the important thing for us is varying, varying the challenge and varying the programme. I feel like even if we were a Cat One, we, we would be looking for Cat Three games to try and get that varied experience as well across the board. So um, I think there's benefits from playing across categories. And, and like, like your original question alluded to, I think it would benefit Cat Twos and Cat Ones to. To, to play cat three games as well if, if they're not doing that. For sure. No, some great info in there. And I think the variation in the programme is key. I mean, a lot of the, we have to face realities. A lot of the players that we're working with 
the small percentage of those might get into the first team. Um, the majority of them are either going to play lower league um, or, or League One, League Two, or maybe even non-league football. So sometimes not playing again across the, the categories might be uh, ill-preparing them for the realities of football. Huh? Um, yeah, so I, would, I would agree, Ross. I would agree. And especially a lot of our boys as well, we try and get loan experiences for them as well, sort of local loan experiences, just to try and get them into men's football. Um, so there's a, a pretty good non-league scene around where we are in terms of you know Conference South sort of standard, uh, Southern Prem standard, that sort of level. Um, and it's really good for our, you know, if we're looking at probably our second year scholars, maybe even our first year pros to go out and play men's football, um, which is obviously different from your under 18s and your under 21s or under 23 games that you get. Um, so just again, adding that variety of experiences is really pivotal for their development in the future. Because like we say, some of them might end up there and, and you know, the, the football is completely different from, from the, the academy level. For sure, for sure. That, just on that then, Ben, really interesting. How do you find managing them loan players then? Like from, especially the part-time loans, because yeah. um, they're going to be training with their with their clubs two times a week and then with you guys, but they might not fit into the, the 23 schedule, for example. They might be playing on a Saturday. How, how do you find that management process with those individuals? Yeah, it's, it's a bit more of a difficult one, um, especially if they're, like I just mentioned, sort of um, non-league clubs. Um, so we try and, have as much dialogue with them as we can to try and see what they're doing. Obviously, like you mentioned, the part-time ones end up, they generally train with us. Um, they might train once a week maybe with, with the team um, that they're on loan at and obviously they'll play Saturday and Tuesday night and on their schedule. But obviously, it's, it's all down to individualising their programmes um, to make sure we've got a schedule for them. Uh, we know what they've got upcoming. We know when their games are. You know, we know what they can and can't do on a daily basis when their recovery sessions are. Um, so it's part of our programme anyway, especially at the top end, we're looking at 18 to 23 to make sure we individualise each player's programme. Um, and that's just another layer on top of that. Um, so if we've got an under 18, for example, that's got a Saturday, Tuesday, obviously they'll have Sunday off, they'll come in and do their um, recovery work on a Monday and some probably some technical work, um, have their game on the Tuesday. Um, depending on the match minutes they've had on a Tuesday and, and where they've been, depending if they've been home or away, what time they've got home, and bits and pieces like that, we'll get them back in the next day. Again, for some recovery, they'll probably do some, some gym work, um, depending on what they've done minutes-wise the night before, potentially some, some sort of upper body session or um, flush session, something like that. Um, for the 18th, they have their education on a, on a Thursday with us anyway, and then, and then they'll be in game prep on Friday with a and with us or train with the loan team. Um, so yeah, it's just a case of individualising that programme across the week for each player. Um, it's, as, it's as simple as that really in terms of, of just making sure we know we've got their schedule, we know where they are, what they're doing, what match minutes they've done. Uh, we communicate with them and they tell us how they're feeling in terms of their subjective scores and wellness and bits and pieces. And um, Just yeah, like I said, just add another layer onto the individualisation of the programme. Um, so yeah, definitely something to, to think about on top of everything else. Um, yeah, not another layer, another <laughs> yeah. layer added on. So a lot of people might look at that and go, well, actually, like they, they haven't got any um, any room for some real overloaded training in that week. They're just recovering game to game. But when they're at that level playing senior football, that's their development then, isn't it? Like the other stuff kind of takes a little bit of a sideways hit for that period, I guess. Uh, absolutely, yeah, completely agree. Um, if they're playing Saturday, Tuesday non-league, and, and and bear in mind that. The players they're playing with might be playing for you know their a bit of money, um, a, a win bonus that might you know um, go towards their mortgage or towards paying for their kids. You know what I mean, something like that. So the, the really important 
thing, uh, one of the really important things we, we feel for the players that go out at that sort of level is they realise the importance of it. And they realise how much how important winning is and you've got to be ready to play Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday. And you're right, the, the, the real physical development might go out the window for a certain period of time if they've got um, a Saturday, Tuesday in terms of, you know, their, um, their S&C programme and developing that lower body strength and stuff like that. But we've also got to consider building that, that game robustness and being able to play them Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday. Um, and making sure they're they're resistant to to injury across that, and I think even with some of our um, players that don't get on go out on loan, we we try and look in periods where you know we're overloaded with games to try and get them playing Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday. Because yes, training is fantastic, and we love having three weeks to get as much technical, tactical, psych, and, and obviously physical work into the players as possible, and that's really important at certain periods over the season. But like you mentioned, there's there's also really important parts of the season where you know you've got to go out, you've got to perform Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday. You've got to recover, you've got to manage your body, you've got to learn how how that um, how that affects you as a player, as a person. Um, get your nutrition right, get your sleep right, and again, that's all part of the, the rounded experience of developing a football player, in, in my opinion. For sure, great stuff there, Ben. Interesting said about mortgage football. A uh, coach at QPR, Paul Hall, he's uh, the under 23s coach always talks about that people in the academy program don't know what it feels like to play mortgage football where you've got people who if they lose that game like they're struggling to live for the next week and that's that's a serious nature we're trying to prepare these players for as much as academies are very friendly places very nice places you have to prepare them for that as well right absolutely absolutely there, there needs to be a point where um players realize and, and we're, all in, we're all in the development business don't get me wrong because and, and me isn't me an advocate ad, advocate for it that's the word for it um uh, as much as most in terms of development all the way through the academy and, and like i spoke about the different varying experiences and stuff like that but there, there needs to come the boys need to get to a level or, or a point in their development where we go right now it's time to sort of knuckle down and make sure you can you can produce um and there's no better environment than you know some, some 30 year old blokes screaming at you telling you that you, you know you need to run and you need to work hard and you need to win because they need to, they need a bit of money in their back pocket um so yeah, again, another great experience for boys, for the players, and, and and their journey from boys to young men. For sure, Ben. I did say we'd probably digress, but I didn't think we'd digress so much in the first <laughs> in the first question. So let Tell me, me <laughs> let me get back onto onto script here on the right. No, so um, I listened to your podcast at the Football Fitness Fitness Federation, which was very good. And any listeners on here um, definitely recommend listening to that. There's some very good stuff on there. So we're going to delve into a few things um, that came out of that. And you was massive on this whole integration, integration and having a real integrative approach. And I think that is essential in, in the way we're working, especially in this modern game. Can you talk a little bit more detail and maybe just give a, a few specifics around that in terms of day to day, what that looks like? Yeah. So um, for me, again, uh, I said it on that the fitness, uh, Football Fitness Federation podcast and um, people might have got bored of me saying it, but that the, the word integration for me is, is key. And, um, and staff working together to create the environment I've sort of tried to discuss already in terms of that open environment, that challenging environment, um, and one that's individualised to the player. So essentially every single person in the academy and um, all the people I've worked with have, have got the same sort of goal, no matter what their role is. So we're all, we're all working in the academy to, to benefit the, the young boys and the young men that we're working with. So we're trying to um, improve them as football players, as athletes, as people, um, but for later on in life, whether they're going to go on to be a football player, whether they're going to go on to, to do whatever, whether they can go, and, go on to um, 
university uh, in straight out and into a job, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, essentially, we're all on the same path. So whether you're a sports scientist, whether you're working in the education department, whether you're a coach, whether you're recruitment, um, we're all trying to um, we're all trying to do the same things essentially. So so why what why would we not work together um, across the board to ensure that um, we're all working in a sort of systematic way to get the end goal that we all want anyway. Um, and especially for, for a club who are obviously putting money into the programme to produce players, um, you know, we, we need to make sure that we're, we're all joined up, we're all lined up, we're making sure that we're using the best of the resources that we have. Um, so I mentioned we've got um, a decent coaching department in terms of, of staff now these days, which is fantastic. But along with that comes um, more people to speak to, um, more people that have got different opinions, um, which is fantastic. Um, but also creates, you know, um, challenges as well in terms of making sure we're all on the same page. So um, if we're, you know, trying to get the same um, message across, um, then we need to make sure we've got processes in place to make sure everyone's on the same page. So in terms of sort of multidisciplinary meetings, um, and I'm going to say multidisciplinary, straight away obviously you think of multidisciplines um, being in the same room together, but what we really want is that sort of integration between everyone and, and not, you know, it's sports science turn to speak, it's coach turn to speak, it's recruitment turn to speak, it's everyone has a, a, a voice and everyone has a role and a part to play in each part of the academy. Um, so for me, that's, that's, that's fundamental to, to putting together a programme that allows you to develop your players in, in, in the best sort of way. And that doesn't matter whether you're a football club, whether you're, you know, any sort of um, athletic um, population, any, any group, um, or any walk of life, really. If, you, if you've got the same goal um, and you've got people coming out from different angles, then you know there's there's no point in not having joined up writing in that sense, um, and especially as you, if you sit down and speak to people, you'll realise that you know everybody's got something to teach you, and 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 essentially you've probably got something to teach them. Um, so in terms of specific examples, uh, the most simple example is 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 um, prepping for a training session, in, in my opinion. Um, so we'll sit down um, and prep for our so we've got our week prep potentially, but if we take one session. Um, so if we finish training on the Tuesday and we're in the office in the afternoon and we're going to plan training for the Wednesday um, and we make sure we've got, you know, sports sciences involved, the medical department involved, the, the coach, um, the coaches that are going to be involved in the session, uh, the goalkeeper coaches there, um, potentially the academy manager might, might want to get involved. You know, we've got all these people around, we've got all got fantastic ideas and then it's a case of blending those ideas together to get the best as we can out of, out of sort of the four corners, if you want to call it that. Um, so yeah, we'll make sure we sit down. Um, our training sessions are planned essentially by the coach and the sports science team together, um, especially at the top end. So if we're looking sort of 15s, 16s, 18s, 23s, you'll, you'll have a sports scientist um, that should be sitting with the coach. Um, you'll have uh, a physio or sports therapist that should be there as well, um, at least at some point during that conversation to advise on um, injured players and what they can and can't do the next day. Um, the sports scientist um, and the coach obviously discussed that the physical um, aspects of the day what we're sort of looking for whether it be a strength day a high speed running day a total distance day obviously the, the usual stuff you'll hear um, sports scientists discuss um, and, and it's real fundamental that the coach has the knowledge of that um, and we're lucky at AFC Bournemouth that we've got really good coaches that are receptive to to what we want to do and, and how we want to work um, I, I alluded before to the, the demands of the program um, and the playing style that we want to put or we want to implement into our teams in terms of you know playing out from the back um playing through the thirds 
um, but also a high press, also um, quick recoveries, um, quick transitions. Um, so we're, we do need to be physically capable, but um, we also need to be very technically proficient in what we do. Um, so we need to make sure we've got the right balance of, of sports science and coaching. Um, and, that, and that only comes from having you know, those systematic, systematic um, processes in place and us all sitting down together and discussing those things day to day, um, feeding back on you know, the GPS reports, making sure the coaches are aware of what that means um, and not just producing numbers for the sake of it. Um, so our, our, again, our coaches are really receptive to GPS. Um, they're really receptive to the load markers that we um, that we produce, and they're and, and they're also happy to to challenge on those markers and and ask us why we think certain things will happen on certain days or should happen on certain days. Um, and that's reciprocal as well because we we can sort of speak to the coaches as well and say, look, well, you want to do this drill, we might be able to get better at if we do that drill, if we tweak it like this, like that. And, and the process is really open, and that's what I really love about the academy I work in. Um, I hear a lot of stories about um, clubs where it's not like that. Again, I've heard stories about clubs where it is, is, is like that as well, and I think that's fantastic. Um, but I, I would hate to work somewhere where um, everyone didn't have a voice um, and everyone wasn't able to put their sort of opinion and, and thoughts across, um, no matter what the outcome of those. But um, I think being open, being honest, and, and everyone um, respecting each other's views. Um, and like I say, we can all learn from each other day to day there's there's no doubt in my mind that i've learned a fantastic amount from um from coaches across across my time being a sports scientist and um and that has led me to be a better sports scientist and i like to think that um also a lot of, of coaches have learned from um the sports science and medicine department and that has allowed them to be better coaches as well so we're all trying to develop and like i say it comes back to that um that initial sort of uh, vision which is obviously to, to improve the players and, and try and get players um, as far through the academy as they can and ideally into the first team and if not to, to, um, to other football league clubs if possible. Some great stuff there Ben, thank you very much. Um, you hit the nail on the head when you talked about multidisciplinary. The psychologist at QPR says it's not multidisciplinary, it's interdisciplinary because yeah, 100%. sometimes you can see people working silo. I'm just thinking of the audience here, Ben. So we'll have um, some GA coaches, probably quite a lot of GA coaches. We'll have football coaches and we'll have sports scientists, so quite a broad range. Um, and I think it's important because, like you said, the, the style that Bournemouth likes to play with, your particular club and the philosophy, pressing high, loads of energy. Now, automatically, a sports scientist will be like, well, actually, I need to get them really fit, and here's my processes to do that, and I need to make them to be able to be fast and, and tolerate high-speed running, XLD cells, et cetera. But the isolated work that you, that you would do would have such a small percentage on actually the intensity driven in the specific football drills. So working together is actually going to get so much more ben better outcomes than working in silo, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Ross. Um, the, one of the, again, one of the really, really positive things that I like about this club is that the, uh, essentially the, the intensity comes from the coaches. Um, so especially if we're, if I'm talking sort of, PDP and above, and and um, and that again comes from the first team manager. So Eddie Howe, the intensity he coaches with, the intensity the first team train with, um, just seeps through the academy, um, and and we can see it. Um, and for me, that's that's fantastic. The philosophy comes from the top. Um, uh, Eddie Howe's, you know, the success he's had has been sort of unbelievable at the club, um, and and obviously that feeds down into the academy and gives us a great feeling of um, of positivity and. And you know, and belief in the work that um, that we're doing, because 
um, we try and, and replicate as much as possible the intensity that um, that the first team work at. And if you speak to, I would imagine if you speak to anyone in the first team in, in, in the sports science department, they they would say, look, if you look at the first team manager, we'll drive the intensity, and we're there to back that up and support. And, and that and that feeds its way down as well into into the academy. Like we're lucky enough to have coaches that that um, that know Eddie Howe really well and know his philosophy and um, and try and implement that as well. So you're absolutely right. If if the coaches weren't on board and um, and, and weren't sort of taking all the information on board and, and trying to follow the philosophy that comes from the top, then the intensity wouldn't be there. Um, because like you say, we can, we can try and create that intensity from our conditioning drills and uh, from our speed drills and from our strength work and whatever we do. And believe me, we do try and do that. Um, but if we go into our football sessions, like you say, which is the main bulk of what, what we're going to do and the intensity is not there, then how much are we going to improve it? going to be improving. And, um, and, and, you know, again, we're really, um, we're in a good position where our coaches are are on board with the physical the physical elements of the game, and, and and even if we look at specific drills, and there's there's coaching outcomes that um, that we're looking to to get from those drills. There's also physical outcomes that we can look at to improve the players as well, and the coaches. You know, I, I would suggest that our coaches, as much as us, look for that as well now. Um, that they they are on board with it, and they and they won't just look at it from a technical perspective. You'll you'll get our coaches saying. You know, this is a technical drill I want, and I think, and I think also we can get this physical aspect in as well. What do you think about that? And half the time I say, do you know what? That's brilliant. Like, you know, you you, you hit now on the head. You know the football. You know the demands of the game. Um, and again, it's the same with any with any sports in GA. The coaches know know the demands of the game. So, um, the sports scientists are there to supplement that, and hopefully to 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 drip things in it and and um, feed things in, in where we can and, and, and be a supportive network. Um, but again, especially at that top end of the academy, uh, getting towards first team level, the intensity needs to be there, and that's driven essentially by the coach. Yeah, great stuff there, Ben. We got two Bens on the podcast, so I'm going to do my best to navigate to, to each one. So, Ben Smallley, is there anything that um, you, you can add from there from your experience in terms of the integration stuff and, and that you've seen at QPR? Yeah, no, for sure. I think one of the questions I was going to have for Ben, but he sort of answered it anyway, was um, the emphasis you put on coach technical coach education because i think we can all agree that as sports scientists it's so important to have a good understanding of the game so i think you you touched on that and you alluded to that before you go out to training you have that discussion i think it's so important that the technical coaches actually know the importance of what we do and why we do it so for example when we approach that high speed running day why we do it and the metrics we need etc so you, you alluded to that fantastically i actually had one question when you're targeting those um, those physical outcomes, what do you do um, when you don't get them in a, in a in a given session? Um, so generally we have um, generally we have live GPS for our older age groups. Um, so if we're looking normally, sort of sometimes 15, 15, our, our 15, 16 were one group this season, so they they had live GPS, 18 live GPS, so anything sort of 15, 16 above live GPS. So we can sort of, we can do that on the spot, um, if you like, in terms of, in terms of certain, certain aspects. Um, so we, we, we will do sort of top up drills afterwards. We might do extra drills afterwards. Um, we've even changed drills during drills um, off, off the back of the, the live GPS to try and get some, some extra physical outcomes from them. Um, not, not very often, because it's obviously quite hard to do dur during drills, but there has been occasions where we've sort of 
you know, we're doing sort of four blocks of four minutes with, with, with a bit of rest in between, sort of two, three minutes rest in between each block. And we've been able to look at the, the GPS, um, the, the live GPS and say, look, um, this person's not getting the, the required physical outcome. We need to, to add something into this, this, um, this drill for them. And, and that's, that's worked. Sometimes it hasn't, but sometimes it has. Um, but like I say, yeah, live GPS really helps um, with the older age groups in that sense. Um, if, if there's stuff we've missed um, later on and we see that in the GPS reports afterwards, then, then we, we could potentially um, add that in the next day. So if we're, if we're on a Tuesday, for example, our, our big loading days, um, our Tuesday and Wednesday, sort of PDP-wise or 18s-wise especially, um, then potentially we can add that in on the Wednesday. Um, if, if, if it's a Tuesday, we've missed something. If we then uh, miss something on the Wednesday, um, it might be that it's too late to add that in for the rest of the week. Um, potentially, depending on, on what it is, we could we could get a few a few more sort of micro dosing bits in on, on a Friday. But obviously, with game prep on Friday. Um, but yeah, essentially, we'll, we'll just make sure we note those things. If we can do it the next day, we will. Um, if we can't, then it might be something we look to to push the week after. Um, or even post-game on Saturday, depending on minutes for, for each individual. Um, we, we definitely do a lot of work post-game um, with our PDP boys, um, depending on the match minutes they've had, even if they've played four minutes, um, but we feel they haven't hit physical markers, we will tend to do um, some physical work after the game with them if needed, um, some strength work after the game if needed, if they haven't played a full game or, um, or they've played limited minutes. Um, Depending on numbers as well, we might do extra conditioning after games, small set of games, that sort of stuff on a Saturday. But again, that depends on whether we're at home, whether we're away. Um, the boys know. The boys know when we're even when we're on away games, the, the measuring rule comes with us, and um, and some of the strength equipment comes with us. So the, you know, the boys understand that you know they're they're there to to hit certain certain physical markers, and and we'll try and and, and produce those as much as we can, because um, essentially we're, we're even even on game day, we're still looking at development. Um, yes, yes, we, we want the, the PDP boys to to play well. We want them to, to win. Um, but at the end of the day, we're still looking at development. And um, if we're not hitting our physical targets during the week, um, and they're and they're capable and can do it post game, depending on how long they've played and, and the week they've had, then then we might look to hit those markers then as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Cheers for that. Cheers, Ben. Really good stuff there, um, both of you. Interesting one, Ben, about the uh, after the games, because traditionally in football, everyone's just done the box-to-box the -box runs or where you've kind of hit a bit of high-speed running, a bit of aerobic work. But actually, maybe like having an opportunity for those who haven't played much to get a real neurological um, session in where max speed work and, like you said, strength work in. Something we, we, we haven't really done at QPR. Um, how yeah. has the strength, how's the strength stuff gone? Have you found it quite uh, beneficial? Yeah, it's been really good for us. So my, my thinking a lot, because... Again, like you just said, the, the usual box to box or a few runs, and and people then go in. Um, and at first team level, I know how difficult it would be to get first team players to do the sort sort of things I'm talking about. But when but when we're talking about development players, and um, it's something we can really sort of nail um, and, and hone in on, um, because it, essentially we're we're still trying to develop them. They're not seasoned pros, you know. They don't um, have 100, 200, 300 first team games under their belt. They're, they're players that need to sort of um, to get to that level. So. Um, We definitely have used it a lot, um, especially if we're at home. So, uh, and especially when we've got you know a big squad. So, 
depending on what we've got. So you've got five subs, for example. So, you know, those five subs, they might get on, they might not. Um, they might get on for limited minutes. You've got five players straight away that need some extra, some extra technical, tactical and conditioning, conditioning work after the game. And like you say, traditionally, it's been a physical thing. It's been right. You know, you didn't play enough minutes, so the sports science should go and run, run that player. But, but really, they missed out on technical work as well and tactical, tactical work. So we, we have been big. And again, the, coach, the coaches are under 18, coach, especially Adam Connell's fantastic with it. You know, he, he'll, he'll back us in, in what we want to do and he wants to be involved as much as possible as well. So we've had a lot of sessions in the past season, the season before, after games, where you know, we've had players, the five subs, plus the players that you know, haven't been in the squad, and if they haven't, if they haven't had a training session already, we'll join in and, and we'll do some some max speed work. We'll do some high speed running work. We'll do some technical. They'll do small sided games. Um, they'll do and like I said, like I said, they'll do strength work as well. So um, we have um, limited resources pitch side, but um, we'll always have certain bits and pieces there. So we'll have some weight plates. Uh, we might have a sled there. Um, we might have one or two bars, but we'll have enough to be able to get a simple. Um, lower body session in into the boys, you know, a squat, a lunge pattern, a hip hinge pattern, um, some plyos, um, which leads quite nicely into you know a, a small sided game um, and high speed running hit. So just just uh, again digressing, but I think it's quite a nice subject. Um, it's not uncommon for our players to sort of come off the pitch and and do sort of a 20 minute sort of strength blast, 15 20 minutes where they they, they hit those patterns that I just just described. Um, and then we'll, we'll also do some technical drills um, and, and they'll go into a small sided game, maybe 4v4, sort of, you know, four minute block. Um, and then they'll go into some, some maximum aerobic speed runs after that. So you're getting your, your, your short, sharp strength work. Then they're getting their sort of longer high speed running work. And we might do three or four sets of, of that, you know, small sided game, high speed run, rest, small sided game, high speed run, rest. Um, and hopefully again, and we've seen from the GPS, we're not, you know, we're probably not hitting enough uh, as many sort of XL D cells as you would do during a, a 90 minute game, but we're sort of we are making a dent into that number and getting them a decent amount of decent exposure to that. And, and we and as we know, we can hit the high speed running numbers from a game quite comfortably afterwards. Um, and we've got the live GPS to make sure we're not sort of underloading or overloading in that sense um, post game. So yeah, again, it's a, again I'm sure there's plenty of good work going on up and down the country and around the world in that sense but something I feel like um, um, there could be a little bit more done, done with for sure. Sounds like really good stuff. I, I wouldn't want to be a sub at Bournemouth. You end up working harder than the guys that are playing. See what they did? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what, they're the boy. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Some of them, some of them um, take, takes a bit of getting used to for a few of them. Um, for sure. we've, we've had boys come from clubs and say, look, we don't do this after games. They're saying, in a minute, you know, playing a 90 minute game, you'd have hit 11 and a half K, you'd have hit 800 meters high speed running, four 450XL and D cells, and at the moment you're nowhere near it. So, you know, we, we can we can get that stimulus into you still. Um, you, then you can have your recovery on the Sunday, and and we can go into our technical work on the Monday, and you're sort of hopefully on some sort of level playing field with the boys that have got 90 minutes. Yeah, really good stuff, Ben. I think probably uh, I think there probably is some good work going on up and down the country, but I don't think there'd be loads of it. So I think that's an area that maybe as industry we can uh, we can improve on. Just thinking up ahead, you could even from a development point of view have certain players who need to work on certain in, a part of their individual program. So some might just work on speed work if that's their limitation. Might be technical football work if that's their window of opportunity. There's loads of stuff you could go into there. Um, Absolutely. I'm thinking out loud, so ignore me now. Um, but let's move on to the next topic, which I know 
I know you're fairly passionate about, and we've had some good conversations or just setting up some games really amongst the clubs um, around the growth and maturation stuff um, and the stuff that you guys are notoriously doing really well and it's, it's out there publicly. We, just to give an uh, indication to the guys that are listening then, some are coaches, some are sports science, what is growth and maturation? Um, and do you want to just talk a little bit generically about it, about your club and processes and the stuff you do? Yeah, so um, obviously it's a big part of individualising the programme for, for our young players. So having a sort of framework for how they develop across across their time with us is, is really important. And, and as we know, if we look at you know, sort of foundation phase players um, and how we come up with the, uh, the programme for them, um, especially it comes down to sort of the, the, the systems that um, and the way the body grows and develops over time. So um, Sort of the, so if we start the, the neurological system um, develops really quickly um, in in young children. Obviously, they go from from being born to you know sitting up to crawling to walking to running to jumping and, and all those things really really happen quite quickly. Um, and that's a sign of how quickly sort of the um, neurological system develops. And, and that's a part of our program that that we work quite hard on in the in the foundation phase in terms of um, in terms of getting those movement patterns and movement competencies in and giving them as many varied experiences again of movement and, and getting those neural pathways um, developed um, early ages we know that develops really quickly um, so that that fills our foundation phase program our multi-sports our, um, our movement competency frameworks and stuff and then into into sort of the ydp where that adolescent growth spurt happens so it, on average for boys it's around 30.8 um, years of age um, roughly around that time but um we know it's not um not generic and, and everyone doesn't have their growth back at the same time um so what we're looking at is is identifying those periods of when when boys are going through their growth spurt and making sure us and the coaches are aware of that um and potentially the boys themselves are aware of that and educating what that might mean um the the, the main thing we look at is trying to identify whether players are early maturers, on-time maturers, or, or late maturers, because that has, will have a, a massive impact on the programme they have, that will have a massive impact on the way they perform during games. Um, and, and, and obviously I'm putting this in really simple terms, but um, as you go through that adolescent growth spurt, the, the body obviously goes through puberty, goes through lots of changes, um, and, and with those changes um, comes some physio physiological adaptation um, and, and hormonal development. So we're looking at increased strength and power um, post-growth spurt, increased endurance, you know, faster sprint speed, increased agility. Um, we're looking at shifts to more of an anaerobic metabolism, so increasing their high-speed running capacities. Um, and, and really, all those things that come with being um, post-growth spurt or, or circa or post-growth spurt, um, when they're applied to sport in general, um, definitely give players a, a, a physical advantage. Um, so in terms of comparing an early mature to a late mature you've got someone who has those increased strength and power capabilities increased endurance and sprint speed and, and those things i just discussed compared to someone who hasn't gone through that growth spurt and doesn't have those things or hasn't quite developed those um, abilities to that sort of level yet so you're looking at maybe potentially an under 13 or an under 14 age group and we've got maybe you've got 18 players that are all um, developing at a different stage and all going through their adolescent growth spurt at a different stage um, and we need to cater for that because you've got certain players that play in the same positions, being compared to each other, um, that from a physical perspective are just worlds apart. So 
you could have a, a central midfield player, an under 14, um, who's an early maturer, and another central midfield player who's a late maturer, and having the increased, you know, physical abilities to, to run up and down the pitch, to, you know, um, move, move more sharply, move quicker, to be quicker to the ball, to, to be stronger, more powerful, to jump higher, to, you know, be stronger in 1v1 situations essentially will make that player stand out as, as the better central midfield player. But what we might not understand is um, the later maturer might not have those physical qualities quite yet, but he will get there in the future. Those, that adolescent growth spurt will happen for him and, and those increases in, in the hormonal development will happen. Um, and, and again, they will, they will benefit from those increased strength and power and endurance um, attributes. So it's a case of making sure we know where players are. So again, if we're talking about integration, coaches need to know that, recruitment staff need to know that, need to have a working knowledge of the difference between that under 14 that's an early and that under 14 that's a late maturer and, and how we can um, sort of, you know, use their uh, individual program um, to make sure that they're getting the, the sufficient um, technical, tactical, psych and, and physical demands. Now, from a sports science perspective, we know that the post growth spurt, we can start to really home in on the strength and power stuff you know we're going to, we're hopefully going to see lots more increases in endurance so we can sort of really um test those boys where where the late maturers haven't sort of had that development development and we're, we're probably not expecting to see um quite so such rapid increases in their uh, physical performance but as long as we understand that then then we're in a good place and we can make sure everyone's on-field programs and gym programs are essentially tailored tailored to them um, in terms of players playing up, playing down, you know, it's always a consideration, the technical, tactical stuff, but also the physical. Um, if we look at early maturers that have got those physical gains, it might be that the, from a physical perspective, that under 14 age group is too easy um, and they need to be stretched physically. So it might be that, yes, we speak to the coaches and say, look, this, this guy from a, a physical perspective is more like an under 15 or an under 16 even. Um, and, that, and they could be pushed physically to go and train with the 15s and 16s. And, and the coaches will obviously decide whether technically and tactically that they're, they're ready for that. But even if they're not, it might be a case that we, we chuck them in there and see how they get, get on physically, because that will give them an extra opportunity to um, work on their technical and tactical skills. If we see lots of early maturers who you know, rely on that physicality too much um, to dominate games at their own age group, um, and, they, and they really don't, use their technical and tactical ability and that doesn't develop as quickly as we'd, as we'd like it to because they're you know they're not working on it they're not they're not being challenged in that area so we might push them up into the 15s for them to have um that that challenge from a uh, physical perspective and once that physical challenge is harder they will need to work on their technical and tactical aspects and it's the same with um a late maturer you know we might drop them down an age group so they can the physical advantage, uh, disadvantage for them might not be there. They might be more physically matched with their player, uh, with their peers. They might receive the ball more. They might, you know, get on the ball, be able to dribble more, be able to have more shots more, um, and, and have a bit more of an influence in the game as well as leadership roles. And um, and we've seen that in the past. And, and I guess that's where the biobanding stuff's been born out of. You know, we've been we've been biobanding for sort of probably five years now um, in the training and game environment where. We're looking to physically match our players more fairly in order for us to get um, extra physical, yes, but technical, tactical and psychological gains as well. Um, there's obviously the, the, the growth 
um, injury risk aspect as well that we've, we've researched and, and David Johnson researched quite a lot in the club. Um, so we've had some work, work out on that. Um, so yeah, just lots to, lots to talk about, lots to get involved with and lots of opportunities to tailor your programmes individually for players in, in that way. Some great info in there, Ben. You're covering loads of different questions all in one answer. So I'm, I'm, trying, my, I'm um, trying my best. No, please, please do. Um, just on that then, so let's a bit more detail around the biobanding. Could you yeah. maybe give an indication on the processes? So how do you determine the biobands and go through the measurement processes, et cetera, and then maybe how often then you bioband, et cetera, in terms of training the games? Yeah, so obviously we take the measurements every three months of our players. Um, so we, we use the Karmas Roche equations to um uh to work out our biobands. Um so basically we've got you know like I said before we, we use the early on time and, and late um but when it comes to biobanding we, we we ban players using the karma squash equations in order for us to get a predicted adult height for our players. Um so obviously we've got the current height uh, we take their their sitting height uh, weight um, um we've got some uh, equations as well built into the PMA system which is the Premier League system we use. Um, that look into um, parents' heights as well. That they form part of the equation that goes into that. Um, and basically, the, the the system spits out for us everyone's predicted adult heights. Um, and, and as we have their current heights, um, we then get a current percentage of predicted adult height for all of our players. And that becomes their sort of index of of maturation, if you like. And and you can assume that um, the higher the percentage, the the more mature the player. Um, and the closer to obviously 100% they are than, than the closer they are to their um, adult stature. Um, so that's how we work it out um, in terms of, of getting their predicted adult heights. And then if we look at each band specifically, we've got certain areas where, where we want to target. Um, so traditionally we've used um, sort of 85, uh, sorry, 80 to 85% of predicted adult height as a bio band. Um, 86 to 90 and 91 to 95. Um, so we've got, we start at the tops of the 91 to 95 percent would be your players that are sort of ending, ending sort of circa and moving in towards post growth spurt. Um, so we're trying to match those players um, that are post growth spurt or, or coming towards being at the end of their growth spurt, growth spurt in order for them to be physically matched more. Um, so that might mean having under 14, under 15, under 16, all in the same bioband, but essentially we've matched them from a, um, a biological perspective um, in that way. Uh, and like I say, you, you've got your younger players, which are your early maturers in that band, um, which um, will need that extra physical challenge that claiming sort of under 15s potentially might bring them. Um, you might also have an under 16, under 15 that might be in the, the middle band there, in the sort of 86 to 90 percent where again those are more um, players that are pre-growth spurt or just coming into their growth spurts they probably haven't had the sort of um, physiological advantages yet so they're coming into that that growth spurt so um, again more fairly matched and obviously we're matching them around sort of five percent bands um, and then before that we've got sort of 80 to 85 percent which are which are still essentially still boys that they're, they're, they're not near to that growth spurt period yet um, and, and none of them will have that um, physiological advantage of the, the extra speed strength um, or the hormone, hormonal responses that that will bring so that's how we've traditionally split them in, in the training environment in the game environment we've had previously we've looked into um, 
the percentages. So obviously there's still variation in that, that band. So there's a 5% variation. Um, so you might have someone, for example, that's 91, claiming it's someone that's 95% of their particular adult height. And essentially we're never gonna get everyone that's the same percentage playing against each other because we wouldn't have enough players to, to do a training session or build a game. So realistically, you have to have bands large enough to be able to put a session or a game on. So there's one of the considerations we need to look into. Um, but what we have done there is reduce that percentage band to 5% where, where we've seen you know, up, upwards of sort of 14, 15% of, of variation between sort of one group. Maybe you're under 14s or you're under 13s group or, or, or whatever group it may be. So we might have reduced, you know, from 14% of physical maturation down to five in order for it to be a lot more of uh, a physically matched playing field. Um, now, again, there's also psychological elements to it. There's technical elements, elements to it. There's tactical elements to it. Um, but we've done a lot of research um, into it. We've had um, a study published. We, we've hopefully got some more stuff in the pipeline. Um, and, and the, the feedback we've got from the players themselves has been, has been really good, really nice. We, we've tried to educate them along the way as much as we can, and they're, and they're telling us, uh, essentially most of them are telling us they understand it. Um, uh, and if not, then we're, we're implementing some more education, which we do consistently across the board anyway. And um, they're telling us they enjoy biobanding, they like the different challenge. Again, it goes back to that variety I spoke about at the beginning. Um, and we're getting a lot of good Good feedback from them so in terms of our early maturers playing potentially with older players and getting a, a more of a physical challenge and more of a technical challenge as well which is what we really really need for those guys um, the later maturers are getting a less of a physical challenge um, and sometimes a, a similar technical challenge potentially maybe less of a technical challenge at times because they're playing with younger players but what they do get out of that is increased learning opportunities so they're telling us they're, uh, they're getting on the ball more, they're dribbling more, they're, they're passing more, they're having more of an influence on the game. And really something we didn't expect at the beginning was the, the psychological aspects. So these late maturers, we expected the psychological side of it to be a little bit negative for them, playing with younger players, being seen as sort of older players and maybe playing down, um, which obviously isn't the case, but that's the way we thought they might see it. And, and some potentially do, so that's a consideration. But also some are telling us that, they thrive on it because it allows them to be the leader for a change. It allows them to be the one that's driving the session, allows them to be the one that takes a younger player under their wing and, and gives them a bit of advice and, and gives them, um, you know, a role model to follow. Uh, so, so we're really seeing some real good, um, some real good uh, feedback from our players in terms of their perceptions of biobanding, which has been great. Um, and we're looking again now into some more um, objective markers. Um, so we're doing some stuff with the analysis department around um, technical and tactical um, markers or KPIs, if you like, um, between the differences um, between chronological and bio biological games. Um, and and one, one specific study we're sort of trying to write up at the moment is around um, the early and late maturers playing in chronological games. So we found our preliminary analysis, and I spoke about it on the, the Football Fitness Federation podcast, I think, as well. Um, where early maturing players in the chronological age group games are getting more minutes. Um, they're also um, providing more goals and assists um, in those games from the attacking perspective. And also from sort of a defensive perspective, they're having more of an impact on the game um, when we look at our KPIs in terms of 
uh, tackles and, and interceptions and bits and pieces like that. Um, but the real important bit of that is obviously the analysts and the coaches need to understand their reasons that, that are behind that. And it's not just because you know, these players are our, you know, our, our golden players and they're the ones we need to, to concentrate on. Um, it's because they have those physical advantages. And, and again, there's, there's still work to do um, in terms of, of education and, and again, across, across the board in terms of coaches and, and recruitment, we're trying to do that all the time um, to try and make sure everyone's aware of these things. And we're not just, um, we're not just putting all our eggs in one basket with the early maturing players, which is something that has happened a lot in the past and, and still happens in, in, in our academy and academies up and down the country. So, um, yeah, lots of education around, around it for all departments. Again, I'll come back to integration and, and everyone needs to understand their role. So like I've just mentioned there, we've, I've just mentioned their sports science, coaching, recruitment, analysis, um, and, and, and every other psychology. Um, so again, everyone's got a role to play in growth maturation and everyone's got a role to play in, in bioband and, 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 how it, um, and how it can potentially benefit our, our boys. Perfect. Thanks, Ben. And some things that come out of there is I think initially everyone thinks it's going to help the late developers by giving them a fairer opportunity to, to practice things that they might not be able to practice when you're playing against stronger players. But actually, it's, it's the, the early developers that maybe don't get challenged enough in the initial years of learning and they go through four, four years of coasting, essentially, because they're physically too strong for everyone. And they might be the ones at the end of it that actually miss out on a career because they wasn't coached in the right way. So it hits the two ends of the spectrum really nicely, doesn't it? It does. It does. You're absolutely right. The, the early maturers are, are key because the amount of times you see players go through an academy and dominate their age groups, get to sort of under 16 and then get released or, or get to 18 and all of a sudden they're not the sort of force they were and they, and they get released at the end of their scholarship. It happens all the time. I've seen it time and time again. Um, and it's potentially one of the reasons might be um, because they haven't been challenged enough throughout the age groups in terms of, you know, they've relied on that physical um, prowess to get them through games, to score goals, to be faster, to be quicker, to be stronger. And, and the technical and tactical um, aspect just haven't followed. Whereas, you know, if you can get a late maturer through the system and keep them in as long as possible, they've had that, that you know, that challenge the whole way through of being less mature and less physically capable. So they had to really, really rely on technical and tactical. So they've, they've probably spent more time on their technical and tactical skills than the early mature throughout you know, the, the YDP years. And, and eventually they get to a point where that increase in um, hormonal development does happen and they do get you know, the, the, that extra strength and power and speed. Um, so if you can keep your early maturing players in, as, again, as long as they're um, good enough and not keeping them in for the sake of just because they're an early maturer, um, if we can nurture them through, you'll probably find that by the time you get to sort of 19, 20 years old, a late mature is going to potentially be your best bet. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I spoke to Rich Clark a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about like the differences between a sports scientist and a football and a coach, technical coach, is that the technical coach, and this is massively stereotypical, not all of them, but are more performance driven. So they won't worry too much about the, the biomechanics, the movement that, that we're kind of trained to observe. But I guess just them having an understanding that he's an early developer without even biobanding might force the program to be geared around working his technique that he's going to need later on. So I think I think the education stuff's huge. Last one, Ben, on in terms of the growth and maturation, you mentioned it about the, the peak height velocity. What sort of things are you looking for from an injury perspective when players go through that 
that peak high velocity? Is there any markers you're looking for to say they might be at more risk? And if so, what kind of happens to their program then? Do you modify their program in terms of the team? Yeah, so yes, it's a great question and lots lots of, of stuff's being done on it in our academy at the moment. Like I mentioned, David Johnson before he's doing his uh, his nine to sixteen sports sciences with us and he's doing his PhD in, in growth maturation, specifically uh, injury. Um, at Bath University, so um, we're big on it. We obviously, like I say, we measure every three months, and and David does a great job of, tr of tracking all the YDP players every three months across that period. And um, yeah, we're looking for when they get into that that growth period, that sort of you know that that growth um, adolescent growth spurt. So the, the injury risk period between eight, 88 and 92 percent um, is when we will traditionally see that increase in risk, which comes with that increase in rapid growth. Um, so we're looking for them getting towards that period and, and and all of our players will then be reported on back to their coaches every three months in terms of where they are on that curve, what we need to look out for, um, what we need to look out for across there. So yeah, I mean, rapid increases in um, height obviously is a, is a flag. Um, there's been lots of studies um, around, you know, seven centimetres per year is, is, a, is a flag for, you know, increased injury risk and stuff like that. Um, but David's doing a lot of work on um, not just using um, specific or generic markers like that, just looking into it specifically, but um, any sort of rapid growth gets reported back to the coaches, um, sort of uh, any sort of rapid growth in terms of leg length um, might be a, a marker as well. Um, and, and I don't know if you, you've seen the study that Dave's done between um, the interaction between training load, volume, growth and maturation in adolescent football players, but it was something that we had published uh, or David had published last year in, in association with Bath and, and in the academy and, and staff here. Um, so that looked into obviously training volume growth and maturation and, and we found there was a significant relationship between growth rate and injury incidence, um, which, which might be obvious, but we also saw a significant relationship between maturity status and injury incidence. Um, and a significant linear relationship between week-to-week -week changes in training volume and, and injury instance as well. So not only the markers of um, uh, growth and maturation, they're, they're definitely there and they're definitely what we report back to our coaches on, but also we're looking a bit further into you know, the interaction as well between that growth and maturation, um, training volume um, and how that works. So yeah, there's lots going on, um, especially in, in that sector. Um, and, and for us, again, it comes back to the individualization of program and education of everyone. So like I say, the, the reports go back every three months to the coaches um, and their training program specifically won't change if there's no um, signs that um, they're struggling. So we might have players that are, that are growing, that are growing rapidly, but it won't affect everyone um, in the same way. So we don't really want to be taking players out of training or taking any of the the time away from their development um, unnecessarily um, but if we do see um, those markers and we do see you know when players um, complain of sort of certain pain so knee pain for example um, they might have an, an onset of, of osgoods maybe um, a program might look um, a little bit different for them we've got a protocol for um, just for that in terms of um, osgood slatters so we do with our YD players, uh, YDP players, futsal every Wednesday evening, um, which is obviously a, a, a court sport, so it's obviously a hard surface. Um, so we found that that's sort of an inflammatory thing, uh, where it gives an inflammatory response to, to 
to Osgood and people that are going through that period. Um, so something for us might be that we take them away from their futsal session um, and do some low-level work in the gyms and call the coordination-based stuff, some strength work maybe, um, monitor them more closely. Um, it, it, again, we only do these things if you know we feel there's a real need for it. But um, but if we would if they were in what we would call stage one, which would be you know a bit of pain and, and potential um, onset of Osgood, then we would do those things. We would we would probably um, decrease their XLT cells biometric load where possible. Um, so we probably wouldn't take anything away from the training, but any extra plyos and um, XLD cell that was planned for them that week or, or, or in, that, in that, that period, we would probably reduce. Um, and they would see the, the medical department one time, at least once a week um, for some massage and, and for a, a bit of an update. Um, if, if someone was, you know, a little bit more, uh, had a little bit more trouble with growth-related injuries, then, um, then there'd be what we class as stage two. Um, which would be sort of as, as I just described, but we'd also do some um, extra hammy and glute strength work with them and potentially some sort of biomechanical assessment. Um, and if it got to a stage where they were struggling to complete training or games, then we would, we would limit that game time or training time to make sure that they can stay in, um, in into training and games um, without having a period of dropping out. But we would just reduce that load just to make sure we can, we can monitor it slowly um, across that time. And if, and if we had anyone that sort of was you know, severely suffering from growth leg injuries, that they would be classed as a stage three. And so again, as a bar everything, we would do the same protocol. Um, but they would report to the medical department twice a week. Um, we'd continue with S&C and the coordination-based stuff, but, but we would potentially take them off their feet. Um, and we would, we would reduce their training load quite significantly um, and do some, some sort of off-feet conditioning in terms of bike work, swimming work, that sort of stuff. Um, and this, this is sort of monitored week to week. And, and when symptoms reduce and, um, and, they, and they sort of start feeling a little bit better, then we'll gradually integrate them back into their full training program. Um, so we, we've got a systematic way of working with growth injuries. Um, but like I said before, we, we try and look out for those markers beforehand to see if we're getting anywhere close to someone developing a growth leg injury. Um, and uh, the physio sport therapists, along with obviously myself and and David, as I've discussed, that I've done a lot of work in this area in the sort of past few years and continue to do so because um, we're not there yet. We're not, we're not eradicating growth injuries um, through the YDP and through the Alice of Growth Spurt time. Um, so um, we're, we're just monitoring that. And obviously, David's PhD has helped us have a little bit more focus on that as well. Um, so again, everyone's on board in terms of sports science and medical and, and, and everyone's on board, in, on board in terms of coaching, obviously. They have questions about what players can and can't do, and obviously we're happy to um, to give them the knowledge. Um, but we're again, we're lucky and I feel grateful that we've got coaches that understand and will buy into what we're doing. And um, you know, again, we hear stories about clubs where they say they can train, they can even train or they can't train one or the other. Um, and we're we're put sort of the other end of the scale where we'll we'll talk sort of dip players in and out where it needs to be, and, and that that goes for rehab as well. You know, we'll get the players before they're ready to go into um, to full training, that they'll do work with the coaches and from a technical perspective, um, separately from that. And, that and, and, and again, that's not just full time, that's school boys as well. So, um, again, real, real integration across the board. Um, but like I say, we, we, we're doing a lot of work and it's, and it's developed quite nicely over the last few years, but you know, we're still not there and there's still lots to learn and lots to be getting on with. 
Yeah, some great stuff in there, Ben. Sim similarly, at QPR, we have a very similar model in terms of modified training and players are allowed to dip in and out, which makes complete sense because otherwise you go from doing one-to-one -one work with a sports scientist, see straight into a session. It, it, it's kind of a big, uh, it's a big spike. And I guess the key on that one is with the growth, it's, it's, it's a magic thing that we're trying to look for, isn't it? The fact that they've grown a lot, but also they're at risk. And like, like you said, a lot of people grow and they're fine to carry on training. So it's just kind of having a consideration of that. Um, Mr. Smalley, is there anything from a growth point of view you want to um, jump in or add anything to Ben on that perspective? No, I was going to say, it really it leads quite nicely into the next topic if you're ready to go onto that, the movement competency framework. Yeah, please, just before we go into that, just a quick one to the members um, or those that aren't even members, please head over to the website, www.healysportscience.com. 20% off uh, membership at the moment. You'll see all the services we got there. Membership is booming in the last few weeks, so the word's starting to get out. So thank you all for your support. And um, yeah, head over to the website. You'll see a whole plethora of, of practices from coaching, GA, from football, from sports science, SSC. Um, so please take a look. Yeah, of course, Ben. Let's, let's jump in with the competency stuff and uh, get into that 100%. Yeah, cool. So, Ben, um, I wanted to delve more into the movement competency framework. So, really, just first, for our listeners, uh, could you just give a brief breakdown of the framework? So, what it looks at, uh, biomotors and movement skills it addresses, and then we'll go on to sort of how you structure and implement that. Yeah, we've got a movement competency framework in the academy. Um, every under 9 to 16 player is on that continuum. Um, some of the under 18s are still on it as well. Um, so that the way that looks is we've got a, a five-level program, which has three sub-levels as well. So, for example, level one will have um, a beginner level, an intermediate level, and an advanced level. So each level has that. So we're looking at 15 sort of levels across the board um, with your five and your, and your three um, sort of sub-levels. Um, so... In each of those levels, there'll be sort of exercises or movement patterns, um, however you want to describe it, um, which uh, are across uh, double leg squat pattern, single leg squat pattern, uh, lunge pattern, um, double leg hip hinge patterns and single leg hip hinge, uh, pushing and pulling, uh, double leg jumping and landing mechanics, uh, double leg uh, plyos, and also single, single leg jumping landing mechanics and single leg plyos as well. Um, so those are the, the, the essential core movements um, that are in the program, and each one has a you know a level, obviously beginning, intermediate, advanced level one, beginning, beginning, intermediate, advanced level two, all the way up to level five, where we're sort of at your advanced work, which we're hoping our um, under 16s um, will be able to sort of tackle, um, and our under 18s um, should be working on in their programs as well, and and across across it as well, you could you could be at um, so we would, we would classify each player in a level. So, for example, I might be a level three intermediate. Ben, you might be a level four intermediate. Ross, you might be um, a level five advanced, for example. But, but every player will be on there somewhere. But that doesn't mean that they're in sort of every, um, every exercise for that category. So, for example, if I'm, if I'm a level three intermediate for my double leg squat pattern, um, I could be a level three beginner for my lunge pattern or an but I could be a level four beginner for my hinge pattern, for example. Um, but essentially, wherever you, you mostly fit, that will be the sort of level you're categorised in. Um, but that, so that's that's the framework. Um, do you want me to delve a bit deeper into into the other bits and how we implement that? Yeah. So I was mostly really like, it's my interest is how you really implement that sort of within 
FP phases with like more prepubescent um, individuals, but then also how you integrate it within like PDB, so within the within the microcycle, for example. Yeah. So if you start with FP, so obviously everyone starts at level one anyway, sort of level one beginner. So no matter where how old they are, they'll start at level one beginner. So we even if we had so we had a, an under eighteen that, that joined us late at the start of, of the season just gone. Um, who hadn't really come from any sort of strength or movement competency background. So he, he started at level one, beginner, um, and worked his way up um, throughout the season. Um, and, and again, some people might work their way through it quickly. Some people might take a lot of time to work their way through it. And essentially, if we're talking about FP players, we're not looking to rush them through it. We're looking to you know, get that real quality um, work into them. So that, their, their program will form part of their overall physical development. So obviously a lot of their physical development comes from simply training and small study games and then the work we do with the coaches um, but also we will provide them with their their movement competency framework program which is a, their basics program ASCB basics is what, what it's called um, so they'll do that um, every time they're with us they'll have 10 or 15 minutes pre-training so they'll do it um, every time so they'll get to training that's uh, essentially one of their arrival arrival activities um, the equipment's there for them if they need it. Essentially, a lot of it's, it's, it's sort of um, obviously unloaded for FP and they don't need a lot of equipment, maybe a couple of bands and um, maybe some balls that we use for doing sort of ball pulls and stuff like that. Um, but anything they need will be there, some dowels potentially. Um, and they'll just crack on with that. They know their program. They know that they're supposed to do it. So there'll be sports science or coaching staff around to, to monitor. But we're, we're in a place now where we've been doing it for a few years and the boys come in and they crack on with it without even without even being told, which is fantastic. Um, so they'll do that for 10 or 15 minutes on a Tuesday night before they go into their training session. Uh, same on a Thursday. On a Wednesday, they come in to the futsal hall and they'll have a futsal session, but they'll also have an S&C session as well, where, where we'll then take that into the gym and coach them a little bit more um, around it. So we probably get 15 to 20 minutes with them to do that uh, in the gym setting. We also play um, a lot of games and, and wrestling games and bits and pieces and stuff in there with them to make sure that they stay nice and fun and we can get some of these movement patterns in them without it being sort of as isolated as we can, uh, as well as having to do that isolated stuff to make sure that pattern that pattern is there. Um, and, and on top of that, the second part of their S&C session is always a sort of speed and agility session, obstacle course, that sort of stuff. Um, uh, week to week, they also do a multi-sport session once a month so instead of doing futsal and their snc they'll do multi-sports and this season has been really beneficial for us um sort of best nines and twelves um in fp so they'll do um that one one a month session multi-sports wise and we've been able to get uh multi-sport coaches in as well this season so they've done we've had gymnastics coaches in we've had um we've had boxing boxing coaches in we've had handball um we've had all sorts um we've had uh volleyball we've done uh sort of short tennis games we've done badminton um basketball you know you name it we've done it um even stuff down to just you know uh letting them run free obstacle courses that sort of stuff um so that that's how we structure our fp program um they you know the getting them to do the the basics program has been pretty easy and um, they're quite receptive um they're always wanting to improve um telling them what level they on they're on makes them want to move up levels um, obviously so that for them is a little carrot and something to dangle in front of them you know you know if you can show me that you can do your your lunge pattern 
nicely in the next couple of weeks we might get you on to level one intermediate or level one advanced and and kids at that age just gobble that up so they're all happy to, to crack on with it and we, and we just make sure we get all of the, the fun elements in as well while we go and and, and we and, and going back to their sort of Tuesday and Thursday night we do lots of running mechanic stuff as well uh, uh, post um, doing their, their basics session so that's how it looks from from the FP um, perspective um, if we move into YDP um, it gets a little bit more structured in terms of they really starts under 13s um, so they're in the gym um, with us, 13s and 14s are in the gym with us once a week, 15s and 16s um, have last season were in the, the gym with us twice a week, they were sort of one group essentially, so they were in the gym with us twice a week. Um, and they'll have their, same as FP, they'll have their basics programs, they'll have an on-field version of it and they'll have a, a gym version of it as well, so a loaded version. So pre-training they'll do their on-field version, which is unloaded or minim minimally loaded but we'll try and make the movements more complex um, and that for me again is a really nice um, introduction to the session so they come in they get on with their basics work um, that, like I say they've got any equipment they need there ready and waiting for them um, becomes their movement competency work for that session uh, becomes a mini prehab becomes a, uh, a mini warm-up the first part of their warm-up um, which leads them straight into being able to um, to do some running mechanics work or whatever um, work we've got for them from a physical perspective on that that specific day um, so that that works for them on a Tuesday and a, um, a Thursday essentially um, 13 to 14th wise um, 15 and 16 will be in day release on a Wednesday um, and they'll be in the gym they'll, they'll be on their loaded versions of, of their, their program so again that's uh, that might be tailored a little bit more individually in terms of exercises that they need um, or, or if there's anything they need to work on but essentially their programs based off the framework um, and we'll get them loaded in the gym if they're ready for it um, essentially again the question that comes up a lot when do you load why why do you load that sort of stuff so for us having the framework allows us to have a systematic approach to getting them into where they where they are capable of loading so we know that they can do certain movements unloaded we know that they're at a decent enough level um, and then we'll start loading them you know low level loads in terms of a goblet squat or a medal squat and then moving into sort of a training bar front squat or a training bar back squat and start sort of moving through to sort of weighted front squats and banded overhead squats that sort of stuff just challenging those movements in that way with light loads before we um we then load them even more as they move through if they need it and especially after that adolescent process where we where we know they should be ready to start increasing the, their strength levels a lot more um so yeah, our 15s and 16s have that on a Wednesday. They essentially have a Monday night session as well with us. So they come in to do some extra technical work on a Monday night. Um, and we've managed to add in um, some prehab work and a gym session um, to introduce them to um, some more sort of upper, bodies, upper, upper body stuff as well um, and stability work on a Monday night, obviously, because they would have played at the weekend. So a little bit more low level. But again, anyone that hasn't played at the weekend um, or has a great amount of minutes or needs to do some extra S&C work has a chance to do that on a Monday night as well with, with, with the S&C coach um, so that's how it works for them our, our 13s and 14s will have a similar gym session on day release on the Thursday um, and then when we go into our 18s program they're in twice a week in the gym they're in Tuesday and Wednesdays um, with us there are two loading days so we load on the pitch and in the gym on the same days um, and their programs will be um, more your sort of typical top end programs leading into your first team program so what 
what they would ex be expected to do in the first team. Um, and and we'll really uh, try and iron out their sort of strength work in there, get get the strength stimulus into them, get their plyo stimulus into them. And, and for me, a really important part of that is increasing their sort of reactive abilities and looking into their, you know, RSI scores and how they come about and, and where we need to improve them, whether it be their um, starting strength, elastic strength, however you want to call it, whichever sort of part of the continuum where they're strong, where they're weak, where, where we can sort of make gains. Um, so again, really, you know, really focused on the individual, really focused on their needs um, and hopefully they get the best out of, out of the sessions that we provide. But, you know, essentially what we needed was a systematic framework for players to work through and, and for us to, to know that, you know, our, um, whichever age group the S&C or the medical staff are working with, we know um, there's a process by where they move through those levels and, and, and uh, we can develop them in that, in that process. Um, and obviously, each of the um, group of competencies has a you know, specific way of developing you know, the, the complexity of the movement as we go through the load um, and that sort of stuff as well. Oh, Ben, that's brilliant. Thank you very much. Perfect. Great stuff, Ben. Um, just a couple of me on those stuff. So in terms of your when they go and do their basics, essentially, I know this term gets banded around and pre-act, pre-add. You know, I know you spoke about it on the football fitness federation that actually the biggest injury prevention is, is good training and making sure they're hitting you know across the normal training week good good basics and stuff like that does that essentially replace that then this basics would that then be there so for the full-time boys would or would there be additional stuff added on top of that as well so for the uh for the younger boys that's that's basically what that is so that so like i said before that that becomes their their pre-act if you like their, their prehab if you want to call it that basically part of their weekly program mm -hmm. um so like, like you alluded to, we look at their program as a whole, um, being their, their route to development and that takes into consideration injury prevention, performance development, um, uh, robustness is another word we discussed before. Um, but again, yeah, that, that, that essentially becomes that for them. And when we get towards the top end, sort of 15, 16, they get supplementary work on top of that as well, based off of you know, um, screening and, and the stuff we think they need to do. For the 18s, they'll have um, tailored sort of pre-training sessions, uh, pre-have if you want to call it that, that will that will um, that will be catered towards what they're doing when they go into the session as well. So um, if we're doing um, strength sessions, to be fair, we do our, our specifically if we talk about the 18s, we do our S&C sessions before training. That's just the way it is, um, which again is an interesting topic, but. Um, it's something that we've been used to for a long time and the boys, the boys are fine with. So essentially when we do our lower body strength session on a Tuesday, um, that's before training. So there's no point in us going back and trying to preactivate um, boys that are already activated, for, for example. So they'll go straight into, to, they'll have a warm up and conditioning element to it, but they'll go straight, straight in without any sort of preact, if you like. Um, but the other days they'll have um, those, those pre-training sessions that are geared towards certain targeting certain aspects but also towards what, they, what they've got coming up in the warm-up and the rest of the session so if it's a speed-based session they'll do um, some some faster movements in their in their, their pre-activation they'll do some um, you know we'll do some hip work um, we'll do some obviously we'll do some knee work some ankle work some foot work potentially um, but we'll move in towards that session so it's it, it is there it's essentially a prehab but it also works towards the, the session that we're working on as a whole uh, despite you know, there, there might be certain individual things in there that players need to, to work on as the medical department see fit. 
Perfect. I think the uh, the one about the strength training for before football training that's a podcast in itself. I think so. We'd have to get yeah. back on and, and discuss that separately. Um, <laughs> yeah, some really good, good stuff there. Then we've t- taken up so much of your time. I've got a couple of closing questions um, to go through, and then and then we'll, we'll let you go. Um, uh, one a general one that I spoke about with a few people is around like sports scientist SSC coaches, like who have played the game, and those that haven't played the game will then transfer into different sports. What's what's your take on that? Do you think those personnel? Obviously, there's so many factors to 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 go into that. But do you think those personnel have like a, a greater knowledge on applying those like fundamental principles to the game, or or not? Do you not think it matters either way whether they've played that sport at a reasonable level or not? Um, I think I think you can have both. If I'm honest, I think for a sports scientist, for me, for example, so I I feel like I've got a good knowledge of the game, um, how it's played. I, I played at you know, county standard um, back in Sussex, in Brighton and, and Sussex, where I, Sussex County League, where I, was, where I was born and brought up. Um, and I've loved football, I've watched football all my life. I feel like I've got a good, a good handle on aspects of it. Obviously, someone who's had a professional career will, will have potentially an even better view of how the game is played and the demands of the game, they've been through it. Um, which could be a real asset, in my opinion. It could be a real, real asset as long as they, they also have um, the knowledge um, to back that up and, and also and potentially don't just look at it from a player's perspective. It's the same with, with coaching. You know, coaches, you know, a great player doesn't always make a great coach. It can, for sure. Um, but you don't have to be, have been a great player to be a great coach and you don't have to have been a great player to be a great sports scientist. I think you need a blend of the two. I think you need to be... Um, you know, you need to have that background knowledge. You need to be forward thinking. You need to be open. Um, those are the main things I see as being great qualities, as well as being able to have a, a real good handle and, and um, knowledge of the game. I think, for me, whatever sport you're in, if you don't have a fundamental knowledge of the game and the demands, and um, you can't put yourself in in those situations, then you're probably missing a trick. Um, but at the same token, you don't have to have, have played. You know, Premier League football to be a Premier League sports scientist, and you don't have to play Premier League football to be a Premier League manager. And we've seen many examples of great um, managers that haven't, you know, made it at the top level for sure. Um, but again, like I think it comes down to the person and how they use their attributes and their skills. Um, so yeah, uh, you can have a sports scientist that's had a career and be brilliant, and a sports scientist that had a career and be terrible, and you can have a sports scientist the other way around that that you know hasn't had a career and be great and hasn't had a career and be rubbish as well. So um, for me, it's all about the skills you've got to apply your um, and, and your ability to apply them to, to the job role. And, uh, and for me, there's plenty of great sports scientists out there and um, anyone trying to get into sports science, um, whether it be from uh, an academic background or a sports background or a professional football background or any other sport, they've got lots of um, good role models and examples out there to sort of steal bits from and, and then you know move forward and, and, and make it your own so yeah no uh, great question something i you know wasn't expecting but i think um hopefully i've given you a, a good enough answer there no great really good answer and do you know it takes me back to when i first went into london gaelic team uh, senior county team about five years ago i hadn't even heard of the sport i didn't even know the sport existed so it took but it did take me a year to really get up to speed and start having a real um, advisory role on that sport because I think you still need to understand the nuances and 
and the way the sport and the culture of the sport as well because sometimes when you're coming in and not knowing it, it can go either way fresh eyes are good sometimes though you need to understand and embed yourself in that culture a little bit yeah definitely for sure and like i said like i said to you earlier i've learned lots from from coaches um along the way so i i, I would have always said even at the start of my career i would have said yeah i've got a good handle on football and the demands and you know i've played i've played a bit and, I, and i've i've watched enough and I've, I've been a football fan enough to know and i've studied it enough to know but also speaking to coaches day to day um you know and their knowledge and, and luck, i'm lucky enough to be around a lot of coaches that played the game um and, and even coaches that haven't played the game but are more knowledgeable than me um on it um for me to pick those things up as we go and learn and i've been able to to move my sort of um my vision from you know i'm a sports scientist and i'm, I'm this is how i'm going to condition someone this is how i'm going to get them strong towards right we're going to blend the two we're going to make sure we can get them strong we're going to make sure we can make them as conditioned as possible as fit as possible as strong you know we're going to make sure they can do this do that xld cell but it needs to be based on what the club wants what that player needs to do in their position and, and how the the formation or the playing style needs to work so we need to make sure we can have a grasp of playing styles and what positional needs are and what the coaches want for us to be able to then ensure our players are capable of doing that and, and capable of doing it um, effectively consistently um, without getting injured so yeah 100 percent. i think the, the biggest thing that come out of that was being open you know both ways but football coaches you spoke about being open but as a sports scientist like you said you went into the game thinking do you know what i've got a grip on this but four years down the line actually i've learned so much more being around these people that my philosophy is always evolving um absolutely interesting one with chris ramsey we had him on the podcast um about a month ago now and he said that the physical side, it doesn't matter how fast and strong someone is. If someone can't control the ball, and unfortunately we've had examples of that at QPR, that they're going out the game anyway. So it just puts things in perspective at times that you've got your blinkers on, but like you said, it's the, it's the overall approach. Um, sure. Then one last question, and then it's, it's a double-edged one. I don't think this will catch you out, but a bit more about yourself and the department. So great insight to what you're doing at the moment. What's the future, um, and you can talk about short-term or longer-term goals if you like, for the department at Bournemouth, where do you think it's going in terms of your your remit and where would you like it to go? Yeah, I think for me, um, there's a few areas where we need to sort of look at, drill down into and, and make sure we're, we're fulfilling. So um, my role as Head of Sports Science and Medicine obviously covers a few disciplines. Um, so for me, yeah, as a sports scientist, I, I'm, I'm keen for us to expand our sports science department and, and, and our service. Um, we've got lots of lots of good ideas um, that I think we could implement better. Um, potentially, we've only sort of one more member of staff, um, so that's that's something that we're looking for. We're looking to aim to do down in the future at some point. Obviously, the category status will have a big bearing on that, and hopefully, the club is pushing forward with a new training ground, which would be unbelievable for us and allow us to do lots more. Um, we've, we're currently the gym we use is currently shared with with a school, so there's certain things around that where. You know, we're looking to get into new training ground eventually um, when it's finished for us to, to be able to push the program on even more in that sense. But if we look a little bit further down the line, um, we need to um, we need to support uh, psychology more um, as, a, as an industry, in my opinion. Um, so at the moment in our department, we have um, a sort of a consultant in terms of uh, psychology. So somebody who works at Bournemouth Uni. Um, who's a senior lecturer, uh, PhD in um, sports psychology. So she, she's fantastic and um, gives us a real good insight. We've also got a PhD student working with us full time. 
from Bournemouth Uni, um, who's around the club a lot and, and works with our YDP players on the day release and bits and pieces. Um, but for me, it's somewhere, something that we need to um, make um, make more of in our department. And I guess, I guess across football, I guess across academies up and down the country and around Europe and the world and, uh, and, and potentially even first teams. Um, we speak a lot about it. We put a lot of emphasis on it. Our academy manager is really big on psychology as is our head of coaching. Um, so there's a real, a still a real development opportunity there at our academy and across, I think, across football and across a lot of sport. And obviously that comes down to finances and, and bits and pieces like that. But essentially, I feel that's like that's where we're going to go. Um, and and, I, and, I, and I, I really want to push that in, in my setting as well, at least. Um, in the future uh so like i say we're, we're doing as much as we can at the moment in terms of giving contact to the boys and the coaches um uh, psychological with psychological skills we're trying to we're trying to embed them in the program in the, in the, in the training program um, but there's still a long way to go and there's still more that can be done and, and more that we, what we can support our players with um so that's the big area i think i think we're going to see no doubt we're going to see um advancements in the, the technological side of it and, and how we assess players, how we quantify load, how we um, we measure certain metrics. Um, Testing-wise, I still think there's a lot to do as well. We've done a lot of, a lot of talking about testing in, uh, with, with the, the staff recently across um, first team, across um, the academy and profile players and how we test those sort of attributes and, and are we really testing the things that we need to be testing. For me, we're still somewhere away from that. Um, certain tests that we do, which are good markers for certain isolated physical attributes, um, but can we sort of stretch the limits to what we're doing and try and um, try and work a, a better program in terms of testing our players and, and the transfer of that from from training or field into to game play is something that, that we need to look into. So lots lots of nuances, lots of things to look into. Um, but yeah, I think there's still still a long way to go. But specifically, I think. Psychology is probably going to be um, uh, the next big thing. It's probably where sports science was 10, 15 years ago in terms of getting it into clubs and, and sports um, sort of institutions. So, yeah, moving forward with that for me will be a big sort of win and a plus for, for academies, for, for, for everyone involved in sport and, and the players, especially themselves and their development. Fantastic. Ben, really, really grateful for your time, mate. We took up a lot of your time now. I know you've got three little ones as well to go and look after. Um, yeah. Some great stuff in there for listeners and some great take-homes for me and, and a few things we can bring you back on for a part two for sure as well. So from, from us at Daily Sports Science, thank you very much, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Ben, Mr. Smalley, thank you today for your co-hosting and for joining us. I hope you found it useful. Yes, thank you, Ross, and fam- uh, thank you, Ben. Fantastic chat. Uh, Brilliant. I, I enjoy these conversations, guys, anytime. Perfect. Top man. And just for listeners again, head over to the website and check out our sponsors of the podcast, uh, ripped.app, R-Y-P-T.app, and lots are going to be coming out from the DSS stuff around with those. So, guys, thank you very much, and we'll, uh, we'll see you in the Locker Room Podcast very soon. Thank you.